three guys up there trying to figure it out, and they're doing awesome. It is, it is a massive amount of people who make uh, our ability to gather on a Sunday morning possible. And a lot of it happens behind the scenes, things you never knew people do. And once they don't do it, you're like, wait, why didn't that happen? That person didn't do it. Uh, so much to be thankful for. So thank you to all of our servants and all that you're doing to bless us with your ministry among us. John 13, we have the, the great privilege this morning to come to a very familiar text in the Gospel of John. If I went around the room and I asked you, hey, quote a verse for me from John's Gospel other than John 3.16. I'm guessing 50% or more of you would quote something from John chapter 14. Probably, maybe, John 14.6. Jesus said to, him, I, said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, or maybe, maybe quote the first two verses, don't let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, or you believe in God, believe also in me. In fact, if you've been to a Christian funeral recently, you most certainly have heard John 14, 1 through 6 read, or at least 1 through 3 read somewhere along the way. If you've gotten an email from me in the last decade, at the bottom of the email it has John 14, 6, because I want everyone to know on every communication that there is no other way. Jesus is everything. Jesus is the only way. It is this text that really drew my attention, my heart, to the Gospel of John, to spend so much time here. So in some ways, this feels like a, a climax of the preaching of the Gospel of John for me. I know it's not. Uh, and you psych yourself out a little bit, get a little bit too nervous about preaching your favorite text from this Gospel, which is hard to say because there's so many. But it is a fantastic portion of Scripture. I want you to stand with me as we read John 13 out of respect for the word. Stand as we read John 13, 36, if you're able. 13, 36, we'll start. We'll read down through 14, verse 7. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, this is your holy, pure, perfect word preserved for us, delivered to us in our mother tongue for this very moment, for these very people, for this, your bride, your church. So we pray that you take the pure words of Scripture and wash our souls with it. By your Spirit, would you cleanse us and make us whole, Make us right with you and at peace with you. For those who are not at peace with you in their standing, we ask that today would be the day of their salvation. For those of us who know we are in Christ by faith in him and by your grace, would you cleanse and purify our faith all the more, making us stronger in our knowledge of the truth about Christ. So Lord, we ask you to do in the minutes ahead what only you can do. And then may you alone receive the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Take your seats. Chapter 14 is one of the most comforting and encouraging chapters in all of Scripture. If I ask you what chapter do you turn to in the darkest hours, the hardest of days when the world seems to be falling apart and you don't know where to turn for hope, where does your Bible fall open to? You might say Romans 8. You might say 1 Corinthians 15. I'm guessing some of you at least would say John 14. 
Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He has told them hard things, and now he is comforting them with truths about himself and truths about his soon departure. Their hearts are troubled. They're stirred up within them. There's a storm raging in the souls of his apostles. And so he speaks words of comfort and of teaching, instruction to them in chapters 14 through 16. In fact, it will all culminate in chapter 17 when he prays for them in front of them, ascending to the very throne room of God in his words and praying for them in light of all that he has just said in chapters 14 to 16. Well, what is it that's been so troubling to them? Well, the the reality of what Jesus has just told them. They're in the upper room celebrating the Passover meal. And Jesus says in verse 21, my soul is troubled, same word as 14.1, because one of you will betray me. One of you will turn me over to the Sanhedrin and will begin my arrest, my trial, my crucifixion. And through this, the Son of Man will be glorified. And then a few minutes later, Judas gets up in this strange encounter exchange and leaves, and none of them really know what's going on, and they've all voiced their allegiance to Jesus. Is it I, Lord? No, not me. I would, I'll go to the death with you. There's, there's no way it was me. And so then Judas leaves, and, and there's a lot going on, and it's all very disorienting in the upper room. And so Peter, ever the group spokesman, bold, courageous, Speak first, think second. Peter speaks up and says, where are you going? Where are you going, Lord? Why are you you leaving us and why can't you tell us? What's going on here? Jesus cryptically answers him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Of course, that's not enough for Peter, nor would it be enough for you. You might just not say something. Peter says something. Lord, why can I not follow you now? And then sensing that something is gravely wrong, he says, I will die for you. Same word Jesus used in John 10 when he said the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. Peter now says to the shepherd, the sheep will lay down his life for the shepherd. Jesus says, oh, will you? Will you? You you will do that, you think. It's unclear how much Peter knew of what was going on. Jesus had told them in verse 31 that he was about to be glorified. He told them in verse 33 that he would only be with them a little while longer. They obviously did not grasp the fullness of the next few hours. They did not comprehend the wrath of God that was going to come down upon Jesus on their behalf. They don't comprehend the fullness of what it means that the shepherd is going to give his life for the sheep. They just know Jesus is facing some kind of threat And so he says to Jesus, I want you to know I'm with you to the bitter end. Even if it means I have to die for you, I will never depart from you. In the parallel text in Luke 22, Peter declares to Jesus that I am willing to go to prison with you and to die with you if necessary. In other words, whatever it takes, Jesus. So in this upper room, there's some sense of urgency. There's some sense of of something's wrong here. The world's about to shift for us, and I don't know what's coming, but I know it's not good. And Peter pipes up as the courageous apostle and says, I will stand tall with you. I will die for you if need be. Jesus answers with what cannot be overstated. And I mean that. I don't think I can emphasize to you enough how much of a shockwave this sent in the room in that moment. When Jesus answered him and said to him in verse 38, Will you lay down your life for me? By the question challenging Peter's devotion, but also drawing attention to the fact that he will, but not yet. And he goes on to say in verse 38, the reality of what's coming next. Truly, truly, again, the marker in John's gospel to let you know this is actually what's really true about this. Truly, truly, this is what's going to happen. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Times. They're already late at night. We don't know exactly the hour, 8, 9, 10, 11 p.m. at this point. It's dark. The rooster crow, you can parse it out depending on which commentator you read. By certain, it's before the morning dawn breaks, right? So a matter of hours, Peter's just declared his life to the Savior. I will die for you. And Jesus says, actually, before morning breaks, you'll deny me. And he does not just say, before morning breaks, you'll deny me once as a mistake, an oops, 
a lapse of judgment. You missed it. Get back up. It'll be okay. No, he says three times. In other words, an all-out denial. A total and complete turning from me as my follower. All of the disciples in the room, the ten other men, are listening to their spokesman say what they are feeling. We're going to go to the mat with you, Jesus. We're going we're to die with you if we have to. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before daybreak. They are all bewildered. They, they don't know what north is anymore on their life compass. They're not sure what's happening. Their hearts are in a tailspin. And into that scene, our Lord speaks, stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is a present imperative by Jesus in verse 1 of chapter 14. It's an ongoing command. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. Stop letting all the realities that you have around you going on right now, stop letting that stir up your heart. Jesus already used that word in chapter 13, verse 21, to say that his spirit was troubled when he spoke of the one who would betray him. It's to have conflict in the, in the depths of your inner soul. And that's the reality of the situation for these 11 men. There's much to, to be troubled about for them as they move from chapter 13 into chapter 14. One of them will betray Jesus. All of them will be unfaithful to Jesus. Their, their chief leader, Peter, will deny Jesus three times publicly and knowingly, and they will all hear of it. Something big is coming, and they don't know what it is. Something major has to happen to bring all of this about, the departure of their Lord and Savior, and their circumstances are beyond their understanding and far past their control, and they're causing fear for them in the moment. Their spirits are turned inside out, as it were, as on the horizon they see something that is threatening their own undoing. And into that moment, beloved, into that moment, Jesus says, Stop being troubled. I have truth for you. I have truth for you. He says, believe in me. That phrase at the end of verse 1 is surrounded in Greek by the verb for believe. It starts and ends with the same verb. It can be translated as indicative, meaning it indicates what's true. It's telling you what's true. Or as imperative, as a command. So it could be translated multiple ways. You could say, believe in God, believe also in me. Or you could say, you believe in God and you believe in me. Or you could say, you believe in me, or you believe in God, excuse me, and also believe in me. You could do any one of those things. I think the logic of the words of Christ in the upper room are very much like that last one I gave you. The indicative followed by the imperative. You have believed in God. You are right now believing in God. You are following me because you believe the word of God about the Messiah. You have yourselves said to me that you think I am the fulfillment of the word of God. You believe in God whom you cannot see, right? You're good believers in God. Therefore, believe also in me. As we work our way through chapters 14, 15, and 16, you'll see how many times Jesus refers to his relationship with the Father. He is driving home to them that I and the Father are one. And you believe in him, you must also believe in me. And then he gives them three truths in verses 2 through 6, 2 through 7, to convince them to trust him, to believe in him. So your world's about to be turned upside down. You'll all abandon me in your darkest hour. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. Your spokesman will outright deny me three times, but don't stop believing in me. This is an amazing moment in the life of our Lord's ministry. Powerful statement of truth out of his mouth. Don't miss this. He's, he's teaching us that belief in him Faith and trust in him is the key to quieting our troubled hearts. 
Faith in God is the key to quieting our troubled hearts. And we have indeed much to be troubled about. Remember, our Lord himself is troubled. He said that in verse 21. This is not very many minutes later. This is not like days later. It's a few minutes later. His spirit is still troubled within him. His betrayer is out doing his dirty deed. He knows the soldiers are soon coming, looking for him. He knows his time's limited. He knows he's about to bear un, under, upon him underneath the wrath of God for the sins of the world. He understands what's coming. His spirit is troubled. And yet he says to them, don't be troubled. Beloved, that's gospel truth. Only Jesus can say to the troubled heart, don't be troubled because I've taken your trouble for you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't need to worry about it because I worried about it. You don't need to fret over it because I took it for you. I bore it on your behalf. All your anxieties and all your cares and all your troubles have been laid on me. I've been a man of sorrows, afflicted with grief. I've been like a sheep led to the slaughter on your behalf, sacrificed for you. So you need not be troubled. There are many things before you that trouble you today, and these are not make-believe things. The message of Jesus is not stop being troubled because it's not that big of a deal. Knock it off. It'll be okay. He does not say that. He identifies the trouble as real, the threat as, as overwhelming and conquering of the normal human soul, threatening the security of these men, circumstances beyond your own control pressed down upon you and threatened to crush you. The choices of others, like these ten men facing the choice of Judas, the choices of others play into your everyday life. Pressing upon you the difficulty and the reality and the, the angst, another layer of pain and hardship and sorrow. And like Peter, you know your own unfaithfulness. Determined to be committed to the Lord, convinced you will stand strong in the hardest test and Around the dinner table with Jesus, you're like, yeah, I'm going to die with you. And then in the garden, when the soldiers are there with their swords in the dark, threatening your life, you're like, I'm out of here. You know that, don't you? Please tell me it's not just me. You know the sorrow of that moment. You know the lack of faithfulness in your own soul. When you face far greater troubles than you've ever known and when the disciples faced far greater trouble than you will ever know. And you need to assess if you think that's true. I think it is. I think in John 14, they're facing realities far more complex and dark and difficult than we can comprehend. Facing circumstances that will set their world into upheaval in ways that can never be replicated. And into that moment, Jesus says to them, believe in me. As the antidote to the disease of your fear, the disease of your trouble and your anxiety and your fretting, believe in me. This is obvious, but I must point it out to you. Notice that Jesus is the hero here. Jesus is the center of this text, not the disciples. Not their faith but the object of their faith. Not their obedience or their faithfulness to him, but the faithful one, Christ Jesus, the Lord. He does not tell them to fix the lives of others who are causing the trouble. He doesn't tell them to go hunt down Judas and deal with him before he does his deed. He doesn't give them a pep talk to help them avoid their own unfaithfulness in the hours to come. Rather, he says, believe in me. Believe in me. Then he gives them three truths or three proofs or three reasons, you fill in the blank, of why they should believe in him. This is the compulsion to belief that he goes on to say in verses 2 through 6. And the first one is, you should believe in me because I'm leaving for a reason. He's leaving for a reason. It doesn't seem like much of a 
a compelling thought to belief, but it will when I develop it. He's already told him he's leaving. Now in verse 2, he says, listen, I'm not just leaving to leave. I'm not just getting out of Dodge because I don't like you guys anymore. I, I, it's not just that I don't, don't want to put up with this. I, I'm leaving for a reason. I'm not just going to get caught up in a plot to put me to death. I'm not just going to become the victim of Judas's plans and the Sanhedrin's plans. No, all of it is fulfilling a purpose. I'm departing for a reason. I have a job to go and do. He says in verse 2, I'm going to my father's house and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. He says in his father's house there are many rooms. The word for rooms is a, the idea of, well, it's been translated many different ways. If you have the old King James, it's mansions. Some places have many rooms or even suites or stopping points some translations have. The concept is from Jewish culture of Jesus' day in which the, the father, the, the patriarch of the family who owned the property in the house, when one of his sons would get married, he would accommodate his son and his family by building on another section to the house. And he would build it around a center court that they all would share. And their family life would be shared in the court, but they had their own separate living quarters, their own rooms, their own suites, if you will. And so he says to his disciples, my father in heaven has a home where you all will fit. And I'm going there to prepare this for you, to make these rooms ready for you so that we can all gather together there someday. The point of John 14 is not the particulars, which is usually the questions we like to ask, right? What will heaven be like? What will the room look like? How big will it be? What amenities will it have? What fun things can we do in heaven? What will we do in the use of our time? What will our mansions be like? Will I be out in the back 40 somewhere because of my weak faith? Or will I be near to the Lord? Will I be somewhere near the inner court? Beloved, that's nowhere in John 14. In fact, there's hardly any detail about any of that in all of Scripture. The point of John 14 is that there's room for you. If you're in Christ, he's preparing a place for you to be with him. And it will be an ample provision for all of eternity. It will feel more like home than home has ever felt. In the New Testament, there's many descriptions of heaven. If you just kind of go through the catalog of your own memory of how does heaven get described? What words are used? in place of heaven throughout the New Testament. I'll give you a few. Hebrews 11, it's described as a country. A country that we're heading to on this journey of faith. The idea is that it's a far off away land, but it's massive, it's huge, it's, it's so wonderful and glorious that we should keep trying and traveling and striving for this country. Hebrews 12 and Revelation 21 describe heaven as a city. In Revelation 21, it has a, a vast dimension, unimaginable dimensions, 1,500 miles cubed, so long and wide and high, 1,500 miles all directions, a massive city speaking to the, the ability of it to contain all of those who are Christ's throughout all of human history, every baby that's ever died in innocence before the Lord, whether in the womb or out of the womb. There's room for them there in God's massive city. Everyone who's ever known the move of the grace of God upon their soul to rescue them from their sins and to bring them from darkness to light, there's room for them there in this massive city of the Lord. 1 Timothy 4.18, it's described as a Heavenly kingdom, sorry, that's 2 Timothy 4.18. It's described as a heavenly kingdom. Obviously, because God rules there. The king is there. This is where he reigns and rules over all. Hebrews 4, heaven is described as a place of rest that we enter into after our long journey of faith. A place for us to sit down and stop and rest. Luke 23, verse 43, 
Jesus says on the cross to the thief next to him, today you'll be with me in, do you remember? Paradise. Hey guys, we can hear you down here from up there. Can you take it down? Thank you. Thank, sorry about that. So the paradise, the reality of, of Christ to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. What does he mean by that? Everything you've ever needed, every point of satisfaction, Delight and joy is found with me in my presence in paradise. Hebrews 9 and throughout the book of Revelation, heaven is described as a temple where God is worshipped truly and fully and completely. That there is no one there who's not worshipping God. He is the center attraction and the highest praise. But there is in our text, I think, the most comforting description of heaven in all of Scripture, and that is that it is our Father's house. It is His home. He dwells there, and He's making a place for you to be there with Him. And so on this journey through this trouble-filled life that's full of reasons for anxiety and stressors and frettings and all the complexities of sinfulness. When it's done, you will be welcomed, if you are in Christ, into this eternal home. You know the joy of that, don't you? We, we put that plaque up in our house. There's no place like home, because there's not. Only there can you be totally, completely, really you. With all your wonderful realities and all of the terrible ones. It's there that you get to walk in casually and freely and do what it is you want to do in that moment because it's your home. It's there that you feel most accepted and welcomed. It's there that you feel the most understood and and realized, at least we ought, though sin makes mockery of all of these things you know. But it is in home, we know the the fullness of joy in our human experience. We kick off our shoes and put up our feet on the furniture and relax, knowing our own space in our own place. And all of those things, as you experience them in little snippets in this life, are, are mere shadows. They're just signposts pointing you forward. They're like little yellow signs with black arrows on them saying, keep going forward. They're saying to you, there's something far greater than this coming. This is just a a little hors d'oeuvre to whet your appetite, to get you more hungry, to increase your palate's ability to enjoy it when you get there. Is this not in part why Satan is so much after the home? There are many reasons. It's the building block of society. It's the way in which God passes on truth from generation to generation. I mean, we could go down the list, right, of why Satan attacks the home. But in part, and a big part, is because it is a mirror of what is to come. And so if he can take away from you the joys and the the tastes in this life of, of the beauty of the one to come in our Father's heavenly home, then he'll deaden your senses and make you not as spiritually desirous of that which he's promised to be there. But he is bringing us home. Brother, sister, you should long to go there. Not in a morbid sense, of course. Don't speed along the process. Take care of your body. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit in this life. He's given it to you to be a good steward, to serve him all your days. He's numbered your days. You don't need to worry about it. And just know that when that is done, when that last day is counted, you have a place to go that will feel more like home than you've ever known what home could feel like. You will enter in there to the acceptance and the joy and the welcome of heaven that is beyond your imagination. And you will immediately sense, this is what I was made for. These are my people. My Savior is here. My Father is here. My inheritance is here. My people are here. My greatest joy and highest satisfaction are here. I am 
home. So Jesus says essentially in verse 2, listen, whatever the challenges and trials of this life are, believe in me that I have left for a reason to go prepare a place. Verse 3, the second truth, is that he'll return for them. He's left for a reason, but he's coming back. He'll, he'll return for them. Look at what he says in verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. In other words, he's not going to go away to stay away and hope we find our way. Good luck to you. I carved the path. Hopefully you can figure it out. I spread some spiritual crumbs on the, the trail. Follow those along the way, and like Hansel and Gretel, you'll eventually get home. No, he's pointing to the the clear, obvious reality of ongoing faith in him. Believe in me because I have left, but I am coming back. You'll know eternal life in my Father's house because I'm going to come take you there. I'm not going to leave you to your own devices, your own lack of true faithfulness, your own moments of denial and falling into sin. I'm not going to leave you to that. I'm going to come get you gather you up, and take you home. It's a breathtaking and soul-calming promise, isn't it? Whatever the troubles of today, or next week, or next month, or five years from now, this does not change, ever. It never changed the moment he spoke it. It has not changed since. It will never change. He will return for his own to take them to himself. Jesus is here presenting himself as the forerunner into the very presence of the glory of God. Turn with me quickly to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, you have to see this. It's astounding to me. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We sang a song this morning rooted in verse 19 of Hebrews 6, a sure and steady anchor. Christ is telling us in John 14 that he's not just making a way for us, providing a path for us to figure out. He's entering in on our behalf as our forerunner. Hebrews 6.19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, that's what he's saying in John 14, when I leave from here having completed my sacrifice as the high priest, I will be raised by the Father into his presence as having completed that work and entering in behind the curtain into the most holy place as your forerunner. Forerunner means there's more coming. They're in front of opening up the way to let others in. Right? He's going there to open the curtain so you and I can go in with him. So we can be where he is. He's not just gone before us as our trailblazer, opening the way and showing it to us. He's gone before us as our forerunner, making it possible, promising to return to take us there. You hear that and you want to be there with him and you ought want to be there with him, but as much as you want to be there with him, it pales in comparison to how much he wants you there with him. We know that from John 17, verse 24, when Jesus prays in the high priestly priestly prayer, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. His desire to have you with him far outweighs your desire in any moment to be with him in heaven. It's so strong and so great that he guarantees he will come back for you so that you can one day gaze upon him with the fullness of faith becoming reality and you can see him face to face and all these things you believed and hoped in and have loved about Jesus, you now will see in person for yourself. And you will witness the glory of Christ given to him by the Father. I want you also to notice back in John 14, 3, how Jesus speaks of his coming to get us. 
He does not speak of, of judgment that will be brought upon the earth. He doesn't speak of, of coming to earth to set up his earthly reign. He doesn't speak of other world upending events like earthquakes and massive storms and a third of the earth's population being exterminated as we read in other texts. He doesn't speak of things that he often references in his second coming. Why is that? I think we must ask. And I know some of you are going to disagree with my conclusion, and that's okay. Why does he say that? Why, why does he say that he'll come back for his disciples and he will take them to himself so that they may be with him where he is, namely his father's house? This is different than how he speaks about his parousia, his second coming in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 4 to 19, particularly 19. There he speaks of cataclysmic events, which are unmissable and unmistakable. He speaks of judgment being brought down upon the nations when he returns. He, he speaks in Revelation 19 of the, the conquering king riding on a white horse with a, a sort of judgment coming out of his mouth to put to death all of those who refuse to bow the knee to him as incarnate truth and deity. Now he speaks in Revelation 20 of establishing a reign on earth for a thousand years. Listen, I know this is not popular today. I know the Reformed Twitterverse and all the preachers you might listen to are going to disagree with me. I know they're going to think I am just got off the theological bus and don't know what I'm doing yet. I get laughed out of seminary classrooms for believing this. But it is what our church believes, and that's not why I'm preaching it. I'm preaching it because I believe it's the truth. I believe Christ is returning for his church to rapture his church before Daniel's 70th week, the Great Tribulation, seven years of judgment upon the world, culminating in Jesus returning after that seventh year to deal with all those who refuse to bow the knee, establishing a thousand-year reign on earth, at the end of which there will be a massive turning from the Lord, even those who were born in the millennium, still filled with their own sinful tendencies, will turn from Him and go their own way, and Christ will deal with them, and all of it will culminate in the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation 20, in which they who have rebelled against Christ will be turned into judgment and wrath in the lake of fire. This, I believe, is what you see in the chronology of the book of Revelation. You might say, well, the book of Revelation isn't about chronology. Maybe. I think read plainly and simply, it actually is. Chapters 1 through 3, the church is on earth, directly addressed by the pen of John at command of the Lord Jesus himself. Chapters 4 through 19, the church is in heaven. While the great tribulation is happening on earth when God unleashes all of his judgment upon the world before the final judgment. The church is in heaven with Christ, worshiping him there. Then in chapter 19, Jesus returns to, to judge the world, establish his thousand-year reign. That ends in the rebellion led by Satan. They're summarily dealt with by the infinite power of Christ. The books are open one last time at the great white throne judgment at the end of chapter 20. And all those who are not in Christ, as I just mentioned, are cast forever into the eternal lake of fire. And then what happens? The earth is dissolved by fire, 2 Peter 3. And God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And his home descends down to dwell upon that new earth earth. And God dwells with man, and man dwells with God. So even if you don't agree with my understanding of the chronology of eschatology, rejoice in this, because I know you believe this. It ends in God dwelling with men and men with God in his eternal home that he brings to us. Praise be to the king of kings. Don't be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Jesus who left to do something and is returning to get you to bring you to be with him. Third truth that you ought believe in Christ is because he's the way, 
for all. He's the way for all. It's the truth of verses 4 through 7. I forgot, maybe I shouldn't go back, but I'm going to. Back in that text in, in verse 3, that is different than how Jesus talks, how the scriptures talk about the death of the believer also, by the way. So Philippians 1, Paul talks about death being gain. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, that, that great text that I believe proves uh, a plain reading of the rapture coming. He talks about those who have died, and where are they? They're with Christ. They'll come with him. And then he'll raise their bodies and they'll be resurrected and then we'll follow behind them to meet our Lord in the air. So that if you die before the rapture, you're with Christ and it's gain for you. But John 14, 3 is speaking about something different than that. He's not talking about you going to him in death. He's talking about him coming for you. And he's going to return and get all of those who are his. And this is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, describing if you've died already, you come with him, your body is resurrected and glorified, and you unite with Christ in the sky. Those of us who are alive and remain at that moment, Paul says, are raptured, are raised up, glorified in the twinkling of an eye, and we meet with Jesus and all who have gone before us in that great cloud of witnesses in the sky to be with the Lord, forever with the Lord, actually, is what Paul says. That's different than how he talks about other things. Just another proof, another feather in my cap that may not have any, but now it has one. Last truth, he's the way for all. He's the way for all. This is the main issue on the mind of the disciples. They're asking, right, where are you going, Lord? Where are you leaving to? Why can't we go with you? Well, we don't know where you're going, so how can we get there to be with you? Jesus tells him in verse 4, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas, honest Thomas? We call him doubting Thomas, but maybe he's just honest with his unbelief and his doubts. And he just says, I, I, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way when we don't know where it is? Jesus responds and the glorious reply of verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's so much to say here. We'll probably come back to this in part next week. But just consider what Jesus is answering. The disciples are concerned about how they're going to get to where Jesus is going. They're trying to figure this out. And they're looking to themselves for the way. How will we know how to follow you there? And Jesus says in answer to that question, you are not the answer. I am. It's not about you following me there. It's about me providing for you the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way, by the way, because he is the truth. Because he has always spoken the truth, because he is truth incarnate, because he has come as the word of God, John 1. He's come to take on flesh, John 1.14, and dwell among us, full of grace and truth, so that, John 1.18, he can exegete the Father to us, right? Make him known. Speak the truth to us about who God is. He is the truth incarnate. Because he is the truth incarnate, he is the way. He is also then the life. This is the, the fullness of the promise of your salvation. He is, as he said to Martha in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It's a death that goes far, or a life that goes far beyond death. It's a life that lasts forever and ever into all eternity. There's inexhaustible depth in those three things, but the obvious truth that Jesus is laying on the table, because if you miss this, you miss it all is the exclusivity of Jesus. There is no other way. There's only one door to the sheepfold, John 10. There's only one way to eternal life with the Father. That's through the Son. He came, he says, to provide a way to be made right with God. And can I tell you, biblical Christianity is the only religion in the world that answers that question apart from human effort. Every other religion tries to answer this question. This is why religions happen, because we know inherently in our conscience as humans that we're not right with God. 
and that we're going to have to answer to him someday. That's in the, the depth of every human's conscience. And so by religious effort and systems, we try to create a way in which we can bridge the gap to God and be made right with him. Find peace with him. Have life with him. Dwell in truth with him. Find a way to him. Biblical Christianity is the only one that says you can't do it in any way. Only Christ can. He came as the Son of God into human existence as the Son of Man so that he could give his life as a ransom for many. He suffered under the weight of mankind's sinfulness so that you and I could be set free from eternal judgment and given eternal life, be at peace with the holy and righteous God who made us. He suffered and bled and died on that cross on Calvary's hill as a sacrifice for our sins as our great high priest, laying down his life as a sacrificial, pure, holy, sinless lamb so that we could be made right with God, so that we could have peace with God, so that we could be washed free and clear from our sin and its guilt. His victory over sin and death and hell are so final and sure that he's no longer in the grave. He resurrected on that first Lord's Day, gloriously coming out of his tomb in all power, glory, and honor because he conquered death for us. And he is the only way to know that life eternally. And that is true for everyone. There is no exception. We get cute in our answers when it comes to the, the faraway peoples who may never have heard of Jesus. And we try to answer with all kinds of things different than what the New Testament says. Let's stick to what Jesus said. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father apart from Jesus. That's why Romans 10 so clearly says, how will they have faith? How will they believe unless there is a preacher? For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And everyone is saved the same way in Romans 10. In the heart, they believe that Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead, that he died for their sins and was raised from the dead. With the heart, man believes in the righteousness. And with the mouth, one confesses unto salvation. So the clear biblical truth about the realities of salvation are settled in Christ. Now that is so contrary to what you hear in our world, and I'm almost done, bear with me. We live in a syncretistic, pluralistic age, Right? Call it what it is. It's always been that way. Satan started it. Did God really say that's syncretism and pluralism? That's him inculcating right in the garden right away. Hey, there's, there's something else here. You should think about this. Our world has been doing it as sons and daughters of Satan ever since that day. But in our pluralistic age, it is more hip and more cool to have a view that is contrary to what has normally been held in Western civilization. You are paraded and applauded if, if you're just a little weird in your view of something that for thousands of years has been accepted truth, built upon scriptural truth. And so in our society, it is not, do you know the truth? It's, are you sincere in your belief? That's the question. If you sincerely believe something, it, it, it's true for you, that's great, then yay you. Let's throw a parade and a party for you because you got your sincere truth. Do you see that in John 14, 6? Do you see room for that here? Is there any kind of an open door in the words of Jesus for that here? And you think, well, we're in the church. That's, we're not affected by that. We've got this nailed down. I hope so button the hatches, check the locks, close the doors, make sure it's secure. Because the world of climate that you and I swim in every day eats away and erodes our confidence in exclusive truth. 
So where our Lord is clear on things like the roles of men and women in the church and in the home and of simple things like gender itself, of things like human sexuality preserved for a marriage committed in covenant bond, things like what constitutes sin before God. We like to play with that one, don't we? Easy to call the, the paraders on Twitter promoting immorality and promiscuity as sinful. Easier to give ourselves a pass in our pluralism and our syncretism and our incrementalism away from the holiness of God. Friend, we must say what the Lord says is truth. We must believe and hold to the truth of Christ. We must believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you say, that's so harsh and so mean and so exclusive. And I say, listen, it's a way. You should be amazed that there is a way. You should not simply be amazed that God's so cruel to only give one way. You should be floored that he would give any way. And if anyone knows the way, back to him, it's him, right? So how foolish of us to say to the Lord, Lord, listen, I think we know better. Thanks for testing that out with your son, sending him here, working that out. It's good. It's a way. We're going to add a little here, make our own way. God forbid. God forbid. He knows the way. He made the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So friend, if your heart is troubled this morning, maybe troubled by the conviction of your own sin, where you'll spend eternity, the truth you need for your soul is to look to Christ and live, have eternal life in him. Christian, is your soul stirred up by the troubling realities of life? Do you see yourself in these men in John 14? Hear our Lord's ongoing command. Stop being troubled. How? You've believed in God. Believe also in Christ. He's left for a reason. He's returning for us soon. And he is the only way for all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this glorious text. We praise you for your spirit who we trust you have sent among us to teach us this text, to illumine our hearts, and to make us to love and worship and serve you more. So please help us, Lord, by the vastness of your kindness to look more and more to Christ. Thank you for the privilege of now gathering around the table and rejoicing in the work of Christ to rescue us from our sins. We pray that our hearts would be soft and ready and tender before you, that you would help us to worship you in this as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Such an appropriate time for us to gather around the